when you think about how faithful God is, just how loving and how merciful, how patient God really is. And as you also think about how unfaithful we are, and how unfaithful the characters in the Bible really are, you're led to ask this question. Why doesn't God just say, I'm done with this relationship. I'm finished. Enough is enough. Things have gotten too far gone. You've chosen to worship other gods. There's too much injustice going on. And so I'm done with this relationship. Even, even in the midst of their rebellion and our rebellion, to go after and serve and worship other gods and continue with evil and injustice. God remains committed. God is committed to continue to reveal himself as this God of awesome love and awesome patience to pursue his people, to continue a relationship that God started. These God's people here in 1 Kings, and by the way, welcome back to Journey Through Scripture. We're in the book of 1 Kings today, and we're taking one book of the Bible each week, and we're going to give a narrative summary of that book, but also we're going to look at a sampler passage. And so let's dive right in here to our narrative summary here. 1 Kings, the uh, book number 11 of 66, these people find themselves in a mess There's king after king after king, and kings are murdering kings, and it's it's just getting really, really bad how tragic things are getting. And And so out of this mess, somehow God is, God's plan and God's promise will be fully delivered. And you'll remember, as we've been in the Old Testament, that is a major theme here in the Old Testament. And that is that we too live in a mess Some promises of God are fulfilled already, and yet some of the promises of God we're waiting for God to fulfill. So that's one of the major themes in the Old Testament is that we're waiting for this God because he's worthy of the wait. We find ourselves waiting right now, don't we? As we're in the season of Lent. This is the last week of Lent, known as Passion Week. That week here in the Christian calendar for us where we reflect on the last week of Jesus' life, where he was tortured, he was crucified, he was buried, and then next Sunday as we celebrate together Easter, his resurrection. That the story really is going somewhere yet in 1 Kings here. uh, We find ourselves... Uh, looking at this book, and and again, what is the point of this book? What is the point of this book, 1 and 2 Kings? Well, despite the abundance of kings that show up in this book, there aren't many good kings. There aren't many good kings. Now again, a review from last couple weeks, if you're wondering, wait a minute, kings? Why are we in the book of kings? Haven't we been talking about kings already? Well, the last two weeks, we've been in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. And those two books talk to us about King Saul and King David. And both of those kings, their rise and their fall, both contrasted, 
against a future king, a Messiah king, who would be Christ the Lord, Jesus Christ the Lord. And so why another two books on kings? Well, the kings are being written through the lens of being evaluated on their covenant faithfulness or not. Some of these kings that are listed here in the book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings are going to be faithful to the covenant. And yet most of them are not going to be faithful to the covenant. The book of Kings stretches uh, from 970 to 586 BC and tells the story of this long line of kings that came after King David and how they do not live up to God's promise. In fact, they drive Israel down into the ground. There's this downward spiral. And so as you read First and Second Kings, it's hard not to feel utterly discouraged. It's, it's hard not to think that God's plan has just stopped. God must have just abandoned his people. I mean, these people have just gotten crazy. A corrupt king after corrupt king. You wonder, where is God? God, what are you doing? So let's go here with the author of First and Second Kings and the purpose for this book. Well, the author is unknown. The author is unknown. Jewish, ancient Jewish tradition holds that Jeremiah the prophet wrote these books. Uh, yet, although these books uh, themselves do not specify an author. But the author seeks to provide Israel an explanation of its past. It's sort of in narrative format, looking back over its history and trying to interpret that and reflect on that. And so the author is just as much a theologian as the author is a historian, deeply influenced by the book of Deuteronomy. And so there are five major movements of the story that's taking place here in the books of 1st and 2nd Kings. The first major movement is the story begins with Solomon's reign and the construction of the temple and Solomon's downfall. This is 1st Kings chapter 1 through 11. Chapters 1 and 2, the kingdom passes from David to Solomon, and there are these words of David, very special words of David to his son Solomon and to, to all the people, basically calling the people to covenant faithfulness. Look, God's been faithful, and out of God's faithfulness, we respond in being faithful to God. That means don't worship other gods. And so it's similar to the last words of Moses to Joshua and the people of God. Chapter 3 is Solomon's perhaps brightest moment. He, he prays to God for wisdom. He wants God's wisdom to be able to lead God's people, to lead as a king in the way that he ought to lead. It's probably his brightest moment. Chapter 6, uh, Solomon completes David's dream, and that is building the temple for the God of Israel. And here the story stops, and it begins to explain the designs of this temple in detail. You know, the gold, there's jewels, there's depictions of angels and fruit trees and a lot of symbolism going back to the Garden of Eden, the place where heaven and earth meet, where God's presence dwells with his people. 
Chapter 9 through 11, Solomon turns from the Lord. So no sooner than finishing building the temple, Solomon makes some horrible choices. And the kingdom falls apart. Polygamy was the sac- was the sort of the, the, uh, the, the practice of the day, but God had clearly commanded against polygamy. He did so in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Solomon starts marrying daughters of other kings. He wants to build alliances, political alliances with them. And he marries hundreds, yeah, hundreds of them. Solomon ends up adopting their gods. And he introduces the worship of those gods to Israel. Solomon accumulates lots of wealth, he builds a huge army, and he even institutes slave labor for all of his building projects that he's got going on. I mean, you can, you can just hear his downfall and going against what God has commanded him. And so if you go back to the Torah, remember the Torah is the first five books of the Bible, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, it, it clearly says the guidelines for Israel's kings. And Solomon is breaking all of those things. It speaks against polygamy. And it says, don't accumulate large amounts of silver and gold or your heart will be led astray. So by the time Solomon dies, Solomon ends up resembling Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, more than he does his father David, more than God wants him to resemble the God of Israel. He's resembling Pharaoh or some ancient Near Eastern king. So 1 Kings 11, the Lord is angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. He has a divided heart. And he's turned and gone after other gods. And so 1 Kings 11 says, Since this has been your practice, Solomon, and you have not kept my covenant, I will tear the covenant and I will tear the kingdom from you. Wow. So this gets us to the second major movement, and that is Israel splits into two rival kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom, known as Israel, centered in the capital of Samaria. And then there's the southern kingdom, also known as Judah, centered there in Jerusalem. And the story goes back and forth from north to south, tracing the fate of both of these kingdoms. And so at times, as you read 1 and 2 Kings, it's going to look like there's a couple of different kings, and you're going to probably ask yourself, wait a minute, who's king? How is both of these people king? Well, the reason is there are two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And so each kingdom had about 20 successive kings. And by the way, Jeroboam builds two temples. You'll remember Solomon builds one temple, but Jeroboam builds two temples to compete with Solomon's temple in the south. And he puts a golden calf in each of the temples to represent the God of Israel. At this point in your reading, you should be thinking, no, 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 don't do that. This sounds exactly like Exodus chapter 32, where they, uh, you know, tore off their gold from their nose rings and earrings, threw it into a fire, and constructed a golden calf, and they began to worship the golden calf, instead of worshiping the God who had just delivered them. 
This leads us to the third major movement, and that is God tries to prevent the corruption of Israel. He tries by sending prophets to speak to them, to cry out against their injustice, and to warn them against their idolatry. That's 1 Kings chapter 17 all the way through 2 Kings chapter 8. Now the prophets that we end up meeting uh, in these two books, 1 and 2 Kings, but also in other places in the Bible, uh, that appear during this time period of 970 through 586 B.C. are prophets like Elijah, Obadiah, Jonah, Joel, Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Daniel, Ezekiel, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Uh, All of those prophets, by the way, we're going to be looking at later on in these weeks. But remember the role of the prophet. They're not fortune tellers. They're not telling the fortune, but rather they're speaking on God's behalf. God has spoken to them, and now they're going to speak to one of the kings and also God's people, and they're going to call out idolatry. They're going to call out injustice. They're sort of like covenant watchdogs. They're holding the king and God's people accountable. They're going to challenge Israel to repent and follow God. And so for each king, God's going to raise up uh, prophets to hold them accountable. And so as the author introduces each king, he evaluates each king's reign by having us ask some questions like, did they worship the God of Israel alone? Or did this king end up worshiping other gods? Did they uh, rid Israel of idolatry? Or did they introduce more idolatry? Did they remain faithful to the covenant? Or did they become corrupt and unjust? And according to the criteria set by the author, the author only presents four good kings. The northern kingdom, Israel. Uh, There's no good kings, so they went zero for 20. And in the southern kingdom of Judah, they go four for 20. King Asa, King Jehoshaphat, King Hezekiah, and King Josiah. The fourth major movement is exile. Exile would become the unavoidable consequence of Israel's sin. So why the exile? 1 Kings chapter 9 says, The Lord told Solomon that if they go after other gods and serve and worship them, this fall, this exile is coming upon them. And so more and more idolatry, more and more injustice happens and continues to happen. And this all leads up to the fifth major movement. And this is how the story ends. And that is destruction and exile for both the northern and southern kingdoms. See, there was surface reform, surface change, but not from the heart. Not true heart repentance. God sends prophets to say, time is up. Time is up. Israel has reached the point of no return. And so in 722 BC, the northern kingdom or Israel falls to the Assyrian um, kingdom. It's recorded in 2 Kings chapter 17. And in 586 BC, the southern kingdom, also known as Judah, falls to Babylon. And that's recorded for us in 2 Kings chapter 
25. See, now God's people are exiled and are scattered throughout the ancient world. And as the book of 2 Kings ends, it ends leaving us wondering, how is God going to fulfill his promise that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to David? How is God going to bring the blessing to the nations and to bring this messianic kingdom? And to find out that answer, we're going to have to keep reading through the books of the wisdom and books of the prophets. Well, there's our narrative summary. And so today uh, we have a very special uh, sampler passage. Uh, I'm really excited about the sampler passage here in 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 17 through 39. This is a famous story where Elijah, the prophet, he's going to challenge 450 prophets of, of Baal to a contest to see which God was real. This is incredibly exciting. And so Elijah, the prophet, uh, ends up gathering all the people to watch what was going to take place. He wanted everybody to see this contest. It wasn't something to be done in private. He wanted everyone to witness it. And so he asked everyone, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. So let's get into this sampler passage today. False gods contrasted with the God of the scriptures. Let's read our passage. Again, it's found in 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 17 through 39. I invite you to follow along. When Ahab, the king, saw Elijah, Ahab said to Elijah, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I even I only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it into pieces, and lay it on the wood. But put no fire to it, and I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull 
that was given to them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud, and they cut themselves, as was their custom with swords and lances, until the blood gushed out of them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran, ran, and the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Well, let's just pause after reading such a dramatic and an amazing story and pray for God to to speak to us from this story. Father God, you are the only living and true God. We pray to you, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We pray to you, this God of the scriptures, and we pray that you would speak to us through this story. We call out to you in need today. We call out to you to encourage us, remind us of your miraculous power, Show us that false gods have no power. That false gods don't hear us when we call out to them. But you, the only living and true God, hear us. You care for us. That you died for us. You rose again for us by your miraculous power. Teach us, encourage us. For we pray it all in the name of our Lord, our Savior, and King, Jesus. Amen.
the first thing we're going to look at here in this great story that we just read is that false gods don't listen. Only God hears our prayers. Elijah, this prophet, this, this, this wild man living out in the desert, his arch nemesis was the northern king, Ahab, and his Canaanite, Canaanite wife, Jezebel. And together these two end up worshiping uh, the Canaanite god, Baal, over the god of Israel, and that's what they're having the northern kingdom also do. And that's why God is sending the prophet here, Elijah, to speak against Ahab in this way and to remind Ahab and all of those people that only God is worthy of our worship. And by the way, this Ahab ends up murdering an Israelite farmer and steals his vineyard and... and, um, and, and by the way, the context here is that, is that there's this huge drought in the land. This huge drought. They need rain. And so um, they're, they're going to call on uh, Baal. And, and Baal is the god of thunder. Baal is the god of lightning, the god of storm. And so perhaps in their mind, this, this Baal god is going to send the rain that they, that they need. And so God ends up telling Elijah to go and confront Ahab. And, and, he, and he tells, um, he, God ends up telling Elijah that, that there's going to be rain. He, he, he goes ahead and tells Elijah that there's going to be rain, so go ahead and confront Ahab. And so uh, there's this agreement that we just read about. There's an agreement that they would each call upon their God and we'll see which God answers. A very, very curious contest that's going on here. And by the way, Elijah's not doing this arrogantly. He's not just going out there in his own name, or he thinks he's some uh, awesome prophet, so he's going to go out there and do this, and hopefully God will show up and not embarrass, let him get embarrassed. But rather, remember, the context is God talks to Elijah the prophet and tells him that there's going to be rain. He, he, we went ahead and gave him that promise, and he also tells him to go and confront Ahab. So in verse 23 and 24 that we just read, uh, each, they, they were to go and get a bull, and they were to cut it in pieces, and they were to lay it on the wood, and, and then we'll call out uh, each to our own God, and, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And, and they all agreed to that. See, false gods don't even listen, even when we put forth strenuous effort. Strenuous effort. Look in verse 26. They called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. See, every other god, Baal included, every other god says that your acceptance by God is based on your efforts. If you do enough, if you tire yourself out with trying to be good enough, your sacrifice will be accepted by God and God will finally be pleased with you. God will finally love you and God will finally bless you. That's what all the religions say. And see, the gospel 
the good news of the gospel here in the scriptures. It reverses that and says that we are accepted by God's sacrifice. We are accepted, therefore we obey with joy. The good news of the gospel is not I obey and hopefully I'll be accepted, but rather it's a, God's acceptance is a gift of grace and a gift of mercy. Look at verse 27 here as Elijah uses a little sarcasm. He says, cry aloud for your, your God is a God, right? Either he is musing or he is relieving himself. You know, maybe he's gone to the bathroom or something or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and he must be awakened. I mean, just, just cry a little louder. Do it a little longer. And of course, Elijah's making a point here the same point that the prophet Jeremiah makes in chapter 2, verse 28, where he says, Where are the gods that you've made for yourselves? Where are they? Let them come and save you when you're in trouble. And the point that Elijah is making, and the point that the prophet Jeremiah makes there in chapter 2, verse 28 is, the other gods can't come and help you. The other gods are impotent. The other gods are deaf. They don't even hear you when you call out to them. I love Psalm 121 that reminds us who this one and only true God is. Psalm 121 reminds us. It says, Behold, the God who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Your God is not asleep. Quick application for me and you this week. You don't have to go and wake God up to hear you. You don't have to hope that God is watching over you even while you and I sleep. God is awake, controlling all things. Verse 29, false gods don't listen. Look at verse 29. It says, After they cried aloud and raved on past midday, there was no voice. No one answered them. No one paid attention to their cry. And notice how Elijah prays to the God of Israel. He prays by faith. He prays in faith. Verse 36 and 37, it says that the prophet Elijah came and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, Israel, let it be known this day that you are a God in Israel. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. That's what a prayer in faith looks like. That's what a humble prayer sounds like. Verse 38, see, both build altars. Both pray to their God, but only the God of of, of Israel answers with fire. Verse 38 says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. 
Now, by the end of this chapter, if you go back and read this chapter, chapter 18, by the end of the chapter, it says that God sent a great rain. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. So powerful. The second thing we see here is that false gods mutilate you. But only God mutilated himself for you. Verse 28 says, And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. I mean, maybe it was just this thought of, you know what, if we really get dramatic and we really just start causing ourselves, you know, let's inflict some pain upon ourselves, maybe that'll just show our God how how committed we are. If only I give this God more of myself in this way. But see, the thing with false gods is the more and more we do that, the more and more we give a false God ourselves, the more and more pain and destruction it brings into our lives. I mean, there's a very illuminating picture for us in Luke chapter 9. Jesus and the apostles are rejected and in Samaria. And go back and look at this story. They're rejected in Samaria, and the disciples say, should we call fire down from heaven, you know, like Elijah did, to show them that you are the one true God, Jesus? Do you want us to do that? Should we call fire down from heaven, like Elijah did? And you know what Jesus, uh, you know how Jesus answered those disciples? He rebuked them, because they didn't get the story of Elijah. They don't get it. They misinterpreted the meaning of this Old Testament story that we're looking at right now today. Jesus isn't Elijah calling fire down. Jesus, rather, is the sacrifice who will receive the fire of God's judgment and God's justice. Oh, how beautiful the gospel is really is. Jesus took into his body the fire of God's judgment, the fire of God's wrath and fury against sin, so that you could take into your life the fire of God's love. The fire of God's love. See, other gods, false gods, counterfeit gods say, dance for me. Offer everything you have to me. Bow down to me. Slash yourself for me. Christianity is the only, only truth saying there is only one God who was slashed for you. There is only one God who bleeds for you. Every other false God will make you bleed. But only this one true God Jesus Christ, the Lord, the King of all kings, will be sacrificed. He will bleed for you and for all nations. The religious gods, the religious false gods teach us, hey, if you fail that God, that God's going to crush you. That God's going to make you pay for it. So you better get, get your act together. Uh, the religious gods and false gods teach us that if you that, that if you disobey, 
bad karma is going to follow you. Bad karma is just going to follow you the rest of your days. The secular gods of popularity, beauty, of sex, of family, of control, of power, of money say, get me, come and get me, and, and I'll make you happy. And yet if you fail me, your life will be miserable. And Jesus says, even though you have failed, even though you have failed, I forgive you and I receive you on the basis not on what you've done, but on the basis of what I've done for you. I've lived a life for you. I lived a perfect life for you. I died a death for you. I'm going to rise victoriously from the grave for you. The third thing we learn here is that false gods are powerless. And only this God of the Scriptures answers by miracles. By miracles. Well, you know, you and I, we may say things like, well, wouldn't it be great Wouldn't it be great if God would do something like this today? You know, powerful. Like he does here for Elijah. Something very powerful so that I could see it. You know, two piles of twigs out there and God starts a fire on this this pile and and, and God does something that seems impossible. You know, why, why can't God do something like that for me? And whatever your circumstance, whatever it is that you're going through, and that we find ourselves, whatever mess we find ourselves in, I want us to remember that whatever your circumstance, remember, remember that God works from disadvantage. He works from disadvantage. Remember, back in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible we looked at in our journey through Scripture, God creating all things out of nothing. And then in the New Testament, When we finally get there, we're going to see Jesus' miracle of the loaves and fishes feeding thousands of people. And there being leftovers, all from the five loaves of bread and two fish. That God works from disadvantage. And in our story here with Elijah, Elijah, remember how Elijah created... um, you know, these excessive conditions to, to make this fire improbable. I mean, I mean they just, they, they pour 12 huge jugs of water over the altar. I mean, that's a little ridiculous, don't you think? But it was just to secure the point. To secure the point. False gods are powerless, but God answers by miracles. God sends that fire down, burns it all up. Not just the offering, but but it says the wood and the stones and the dust around the altar. The greatest miracle. When we think about miracles, God's power. False gods do not have power. So when we think about God's miraculous power, God's greatest, greatest miracle is that of the resurrection. God raises a man from the dead. No other religion has ever, ever made that claim before. Only God of the scriptures 
is not only making that claim, but actually bringing that miracle to happen. Acts chapter 2, there in the New Testament, that the spirit of the resurrection descends uh, upon their hearts. Those, those believers there, those, those Christians there in the first century, the resurrection takes place and the spirit, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of the resurrection comes into their hearts. And how do they show it? How do they show it? He, he puts fire on their heads. And believers have the same, same resurrection power of God surging inside of them. <laughs> surging inside of them, which is its own proof. The life, the power of a changed life. The testimony of God's power. In conclusion, we're in Passion Week this week. It starts today. Starts today, last week of Lent, called Passion Week, taking us all the way to the events leading up to Christ on a cross and rising from the dead, which we'll celebrate next week. Here's the application. Go all in with God. Not with a divided heart, but go all in with God. We'll leave our time here with Elijah's question. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. Let us pray. Father God, help us follow You. Convince us. In our doubt, convince us. In our pain, heal us. In our discouragement, encourage us. Lord God, we call out to you and we know that you are a God who hears us. We, we call out to you this, this God who knows suffering and this God who was sacrificed for us on behalf of us. And God, we thank you for your miracle of raising Christ from the dead and we pray in his name. Amen.